Six days before Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why is this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not have always but you do not always have me. When a large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is Baby Roman. Say hi. <laughs> he actually did do that. He waved at me. <laughs> One of the first things that we're going to have to do as a church family is meet all these new kids that the Lord has brought into our family since um, the quarantine has began, right? Don't you look forward to seeing Roman and all these other children that the Lord has brought to us? I can't wait to see him. Families, as you uh, gather around uh, God's word, would you open with me to John chapter 12? John chapter 12. Kiddos, we want you to know that this is a time for you too. This is not just a time where your parents get to study God's word. You get to listen too. So I want you to listen for three ideas, three things. Are you ready? I want you to listen for the word stinky armpits. You got that? Stinky armpits. For the word holy, holy oil, stinky armpits, holy oil, and lastly, sticky fingers. Stinky armpits, holy oil, sticky fingers. Now, if you've been with us in the book of John, as we've preached through it, you know that we're at a time where Jesus is receiving incredible opposition from all sorts of corners, from the, the government is starting to watch him more closely, the religious officials are starting to rise in their opposition of Jesus. And the whole point of the book of John is to teach us why Jesus did the things that he did in order to invite us to believe. And if you're a believer, to invite us to enter into repentance, deeper repentance and self-awareness again. And in today's passage... It reminds me of what we've all seen in the news and what we've all read in the papers of the last uh, week or so as things begin to open up in our nation. Journalists are like coming out of their houses and their apartments and their places of residence and they're finally being able to talk to people and they've gathered people in rooms and they've gathered groups and they've, they've interviewed them over the phone and they've said, so how do you respond now to the changes as we begin to open the country back up economically? How would you respond? And so we've heard all these different interviews with people, and it's very much the same way when you get to John chapter 11 and John chapter 12. 
is as though John, Jesus' beloved friend, his closest friend, gathers all these people together. And he gets the, the friends of Mary, and he gets the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and, and Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Simon, and he gets Judas, and he gets everybody in one place. And he goes, okay, how do you respond to Jesus? And we saw last week that John chapter 11 and John chapter 12, the first part of John chapter 12, show us that there are five different kinds of responses to Jesus, five different kinds of people who respond in five different kinds of ways. We saw last week that there are first, there are the cautious. There are those who go and they check in with the religious leaders. They're the, they're the cautious. They, they, want to, they want to make sure what they feel is right. And um, they, those are the ones in the story who turn Jesus over to the Pharisees. Then there's the calculating. There's the Pharisees and the Sadducees who gather together in the Sanhedrin and they unite a rare thing for people across the aisle, the Pharisees and Sadducees to do. They unite together in their opposition of Jesus. They calculate how they can put him to death. And that may be some of you listening. Then there are not just the cautious and the calculating, there are the curious. Those are the people that Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon calls the balconiers, who stand at the back of the church and they just kind of watch. They're not real sure what to do with this whole Christianity thing. They're the curious. And I hope if you were once cautious, I hope that now you're curious. And I hope if you were curious, I hope that you can move today to see what it means to be committed. And I hope we'll all be abhorred by the counterfeit, by Judas. So let's look at what it means in this passage for us to be truly committed, to respond to Christ in a way that says, I'm in. I'm committed. You ready? Look at verse 1. It says, now six days before the Passover, that means that it would have been a Saturday that Jesus comes into Bethany. Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany. Now, the word in Greek, therefore, un, connects us back to what happened in chapter 15. Remember, divisions of the Bible, ver, uh, chapter divisions, verse divisions, weren't part of the original. And in some places, like this, they are as inexact as they might be if you had put them in riding on a horseback in the rain through Paris, which is when the New Testament verse divisions actually came. So it's really part of one story, chapter 11 and chapter 12. And they came to Bethany where Lazarus was, and at verse 2, they gave a dinner party for Jesus. <laughs> they threw a party for Jesus. And the early church said that this picture is a picture of glory. It's a picture of heaven. It's the only time in Jesus' life when there was a party thrown for him. I mean, can you imagine the Son of God incarnating, taking on flesh, and coming to live among sinful humans as the one who had been eternally perfect and is forever glorified now at the Father's right hand? Can you imagine what honor he must have felt in an amazing way of having a dinner party thrown for him. And the whole gang is there. It's like Moe's uh, Isley's a Cantina in Star Wars. It's like, it's like the bar at Cheers. It's like everybody's there. Mary's there. Martha's there. Lazarus is there, who's just been raised from the dead. Matthew and Mark tell us that uh, Simon, the leper, hosted the party. And in the ancient Near East, 
they didn't have three meals a day like, they, like we normally do now. There was really one big meal a day, dinner. And when they had their meals, they would, also, they would, they would gather around a table. And on formal settings like this, when there would be a dinner party, they would gather around a, a three-sided table. So one side would be open that you could deliver the food toward. And then there would be a three-sided table. And next to that low-lying table, there would be cushions where on those three sides you would sit, or you would lay, rather, and you would do so in order of honor of the guests that were present. And so they, they, they called this a triclinium. It's the formal name for that way of seating, a triclinium. And so you can imagine this three-sided table, and you're laying on your side, and you're eating dinner, laying down, and your feet, therefore, are exposed outward. Can you see it? And so here's Jesus sitting at dinner, laying at dinner, rather, with his feet exposed. And Mary comes in. And when, when, when Mary comes in, she does something that astounded the guests in three ways. She broke a box, she anointed his feet, and she unbound her hair. Mary broke a box. She was committed to Jesus. She broke a box. What does that mean? Well, look at the text. It says, therefore, Mary took a pound of expensive ointment, a Roman pound would be three-fourths of a pound a day. And made, it was made from pure nard, and she anointed the feet of Jesus. Now stop just for a second. It wouldn't be odd in the ancient Near East for people to bring perfume to dinner parties. I mean, like, imagine what you would bring if you walked into a junior high boy's locker room to have Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> you'd, you'd, bring some, you'd bring some stuff to make the place smell better too, wouldn't you? They didn't have deodorant in the same way that we have today. And so there were some stinky armpits in the room. They, 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 they were able to embrace smells in ways that would be totally foreign to us today. This place probably stunk. And so there were probably many people who brought ointment, brought different ways to, to keep things smelling nice amidst this gathering of people in a, in a small room together. Stinky though they may have been from a day's journey. You can imagine the scene. So it wasn't odd to bring to bring ointment. What was odd is that Mary brought the box. Elsewhere in scripture, it says that Mary brought an alabaster box. She brought a box. And this box wasn't just any box. It was the box of the nicest ointment that she owned. It was a box that was saved for uh, the rainy day. It was saved for the tragedy. It was, it, was, it was, frankly, it was her life insurance policy, this alabaster box. You know, in COVID-19, as, as the economy shifts down, you can hear a lot of different financial advice. But one thing you hear so many people say is, don't mess with your 401k. Don't mess with your 403b, your retirement fund, your pension. Like, don't mess with it. Don't, don't cash it out. Why? Because it's like, for people, it's like, it's like, it's their, it's their hedge against disaster. And here, Mary brings in her IRA. That's what the equivalent was. And she takes this hedge against disaster, this alabaster box. It was probably an heirloom that she brings in. And she, she breaks it. 
And immediately when she broke the box, it wasn't just a, a party perfume for a group of people. It was, it was her life security. Heads go, <laughs> and then you look at Mary. And not only does she break the box, but secondly, what does she do? She goes and she anoints Jesus' feet. She anoints Jesus' feet with the oil that was her hedge against disaster. And she anoints his feet. And for us today, we might say, well, that was nice. She gave him a foot rub. But back then, to, to touch somebody's feet was the lowest of the low. It was reserved for the lowest of the lowest servant. In fact, if you were a slave in the ancient Near East, you had rights. It wasn't like the Western slavery that we think of today. It was very, very different. And, and slaves had rights. And one of the rights they had was that they were never required to untie the sandal of their master's feet. They weren't required to do that. Why? Because to touch somebody's feet was like the lowest of the low. It was very hard. I don't know what the equivalent might be, but it might be, it, um, it, it, it might be caring for somebody who just can't, it might be dressing somebody who can't dress themselves today. It, it was very, it was intimate, and it was considered uh, a task only for the lowest of the lowly servants. And, and Jesus here has Mary who says, I am your servant. I will become the lowest of the low for you, Jesus. Not only will I break my alabaster box, but I will anoint your feet. And if you read the story together with Matthew and, and Mark, you'll, you'll read that he didn't just have his feet anointed, but he also probably had his head anointed in his body as well. Jesus probably sat up from the table to let her anoint him. Now, it's interesting to note here, just for historical record's sake, that in Luke chapter 7, there's another story of when Jesus had his feet anointed by a woman who also unbound her hair. But Luke chapter 7 tells a different story. It tells the story of another Mary, not Mary the sister of Lazarus. In Luke 7, that's Mary Magdalene. Different story different woman. That was a woman of ill repute. This is a different Mary. This is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. And what does she do next? She doesn't just break the box. She anoints his feet. She doesn't just anoint his feet, but she unbinds her hair. I can't illustrate that very well for you, can I? She unbinds her hair. And when she unbinds her hair, the whole room stands still, shocked by what they witness. Because for a woman in the ancient Near East to unbind her hair, you never, you never unbound your hair except in the most intimate of settings, with your family, with your husband. And that was it. Some Jewish rabbis said that if a woman unbinds her hair in public, that in itself is reason to issue her a certificate of divorce. So here Mary is. She's breaking her alabaster box, what she had, her resources, she anoints Jesus' feet. She says, I am lowly. I am, I am here to serve you humbly. And she lets down her hair. That is she, un, she says, I am here. All of me. This is who I am. And she serves him wholeheartedly without condition. Now, it's interesting as I read this text and studied for it this week, I find myself able to do the first in the second pretty easily. 
Like, it's fairly easy for those of us to say, oh, we should give? OK, well, we'll give. We'll give of our time. We'll give of our talent. We'll give of our treasure. And it's fairly easy for us to give. Lord, you want me to give? Great, I'll give. And it's also pretty easy for some of us to serve. I'll be there. Name the place and time, and I'll go serve. But it's possible, isn't it? It's possible for us to both give of our money and give of our time and service. Even very, very, and doing very menial and humble things. It's possible for us to do those two things. And still not give ourselves unconditionally to Jesus. And what Mary is teaching us is that there are three ways that the gospel gets into the heart. You can give of your money. This is what Jesus told the rich young ruler. You can give up your control, take the lowest of the lowly. This is, this is what uh, the prophet commanded Naaman in the Old Testament. Give up control. But it's very hard for us to give without condition the whole of our life. The only condition that Jesus asks of us is that we give ourselves to him unconditionally. And that's the condition that many of us can't meet. We say, well, well, we'll give to you conditionally, Jesus, as long as you provide this in return. We'll, we'll, we'll do this for you, Jesus, as long as, as long as you don't ask me to give it this area of my life. Don't take my health. Don't take my 401k. Don't take my children. Oh, Jesus, you can have all of me. And out of one side of the mouth, we say, we really want to obey you unconditionally. And with our hands, we tightly grip those things that give us value and identity, don't we? Mary was deeply committed. You know, you think about the old hymn that says, take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. That's the alabaster box. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. That is anointing his feet. And take my life. And let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee, unbinding her hair. Mary didn't just give herself to Jesus volitionally out of her will. She gave him her delight, all of who she was. That's what it means to be committed. And now next, you see the counterfeit. Notice that John focuses on Judas here. Why? In other, Matthew and Mark, they focus on the disciples in general. But here, John zeroes in on Judas. Why does he do that? He zeroes in on Judas because he wants us to see that there are two options. You can sell Jesus or you can sell out for Jesus. You can say with one side of your mouth that you love Jesus, with the other, just want your own agenda, or you can give all of who you are to who Christ asks you to be. And so he uses Judas as the example of what it means to be a counterfeit. Judas epitomizes a cynical and a critical spirit here in the text, doesn't he? Notice, notice what it was for Judas. Like, for the crowd watching, it was her unbinding her hair. That was a deeply emotional experience, and they were shocked by it. But for Judas, what was it? It was the alabaster box. It was the money. You notice what, G what Judas says. Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, who he knew was about to betray him, because he, he, we're going to see he does that in the next chapter in the coming weeks and months. Judas immediately says, why would this, was this anointment not sold and give it to the poor? Why, why, that's, just like, that's just like 
That's just like Judas, isn't it? Judas isn't trying to be morally upright here. Judas is jealous and he's aghast and he, he's not like channeling his inner Dave Ramsey. Judas like lusts after the money. And John says he's already had his sticky fingers in the money bag for the disciples. He has already been a thief in the past. Judas longed for the money. And isn't it, isn't it just like human beings who see somebody who has more money than we have and think, I know exactly how that person should spend their money. <laughs> isn't it just like us? Like we look at people who have more money. Like Judas looked at Mary at this moment and looked and saw what she had. And we say to those people, well, if I had those resources, I would spend it in this way. And we just kind of like turn up our moral superiority nose a little bit. And we think we know better how to spend other people's money. Listen, Jesus wasn't interested in how Judas wanted to spend Mary's money. And Jesus, frankly, isn't very interested in how you want to spend somebody else's money. Jesus is very interested in how you spend your money. And Jesus says to Mary, or to Judas, leave her alone, that she might keep it from my burial. The poor you'll always have with you, but you won't always have me. Now, you heard Elroy and Jeanette earlier read in Exodus about the, um, the holy oil. In the Old Testament, there was holy oil and there was holy furniture that was marked out in the temple to be used for holy purposes. And the holy furniture wasn't special furniture. It wasn't, wasn't as though it was any different than any other, but it was designed for a very specific use. And the specificity of that use means that it was anointed to be used for one particular purpose, the worship of God. And like the holy furniture of old and like the holy oil that's anointed to be used, so also, Christians, you are anointed with the Holy Spirit. And you are to be used for one particular purpose. I know you have conditions. I know you want to be used in certain ways. You want to write the agenda. But Jesus says you're like the holy furniture in the temple. You're like the holy oil. You're mine to be used in a way that will glorify me and bring you great delight. Because how I intend to use you, if you will let me have your life without condition, how I intend to use you will bring you so much more joy, so much deeper delight. You won't just serve me out of duty. You'll begin to serve me out of delight because I've created you to be used for my purposes. And that's something that Judas could not see. He, he tells Mary what to do with her money, and then he... Then he tries to become, you know, show off his moral superiority again by talking about the poor. And, and what does it mean here when Jesus says, the poor you'll always have among you, but you won't always have me? Was, was Jesus denigrating the poor in some way? Was Jesus saying, well, the poor aren't that important? No. In this text, he's saying exactly the opposite. Jesus is saying, of course the poor are important. They're incredibly important. How much more important, therefore, Am I? If the poor, who aren't to be denigrated, they're incredibly important, and we should provide and care and serve and love them well. If they're important, and so important are they, I'm more important. And so Jesus actually is raising up his view of the poor here. He is showing that he has a high view of the poor, only that he has an even higher view of his own worth, 
for worship. Do you see that? Now, we see in the committed that Mary breaks the alabaster box, that she anoints his feet, that she lets down her hair. And we see in the counterfeit, in Judas, who says that he is walking with Jesus, but in the end he's taking money out of the disciples' treasury box. And he is um, suggesting that he is better than everybody else in the room by telling the rich how to use their money and telling Jesus how he's mistreating the poor and how he needs to be the one that designates where you know, resources go. Let's compare these two just for a second in the final moments we have together. Mary and Judas. I want you to look at the text again as you read it. Notice that she breaks this box. She anoints his feet. She lets out her hair. What does that communicate? Mary has a tremendous sense of confidence in a room where her sister Martha is undoubtedly serving. Lazarus is like checking things out on his body. It's shocked that he's been raised from the dead. You know, Simon, previously the leper, is like showing off his skin to everybody. You know, and every time in the Gospels you see Mary and Jesus together, where do you see Mary? You see her at his feet. And Mary there is at the feet of Jesus. And she's not at the feet of Jesus cowering in fear. She's there as a confident woman, letting down her hair, anointing his feet, like leading the people at this dinner party in what it looks like to be in heaven to worship Jesus. She has incredible confidence. But religious people don't have confidence. They're constantly wondering if they measure up. Like the people who were watching this whole thing happen, what were they they were aghast. Judas was aghast by the fact that she spent almost a year's wage on Jesus, anointing him. But the crowd would have been aghast by her unletting down her hair, unbinding her hair. They'd have been shocked by that because it was such an intimate image of Mary saying, Jesus, you can have the whole of my life to serve you however you tell me without condition, and they were shocked by it. Religious people are always shocked by people who unconditionally obey Jesus, aren't they? Because religious people in the church are always obeying God in order, on the condition that God then love them back. They, they obey God with conditions. And so the religious are people who are radically insecure people. They, can't, they can go to community group, they can tithe, but they're not really able to be known. Like, is your community group if you're in a small group, is your group like that? Where you can break the alabaster box and you can anoint Jesus' feet, but I'm not about to unbind my hair. I'm not about to be emotionally raw and real with people. Let me just challenge those of you who are in community groups. What would it take in your group, in your group dynamic, to take the next step, to get past the alabaster box, to get past anointing Jesus' feet, and to let down your hair. Can we begin to embody together as community groups what it means to really be known and to be able to say together with all of our sins and struggles and peccadilloes and tendencies, to say, Jesus, I want to serve you unconditionally. What is it in my life that you need to teach me to unbind, to let go? Religious people tend toward fanaticism. That is, they always need to suffer for Jesus. They always need to find some way to lather themselves up so that they can convince themselves that they're really moral people. Or on the other hand, they don't want to suffer at all. 
I don't want to suffer. I'll follow you, Jesus, until, until this point, and then I'm out. Too much. Some who are the fanatical kind will be all in. They want to suffer for Christ, and they want to prove their worth to Jesus by how much they suffer for him. And others are like quid pro quo. Quid pro quo. Tit for tat. I will only serve Jesus up until this point. Which are you? Mary didn't pursue suffering. She didn't need to suffer in order to show herself to be a martyr. She didn't avoid it either. She had her eyes on Jesus. And what was it about Mary? It wasn't her will. It was that she perceived in Jesus something beautiful. Do you remember when Jesus came to uh, Lazarus' house four days after he died, and Martha runs to him, and, and Jesus rebukes Martha? And Mary, what does he do with Mary? With Mary, he weeps with her. He weeps with her. And after that, Mary's friends leave, and they go and they tell the Sadducees and Pharisees. And, they, and undoubtedly, they told Mary. They were her friends, it says, back in uh, chapter 11, around verse 45. They were friends of Mary. And they went and told the Pharisees. And so they probably told Mary, hey, we're going to go tell the Pharisees what Jesus just did. And so what Mary knows is that that is Jesus' death sentence. Mary may have in some way perceived and known that this is the beginning of the end for the life of Jesus on earth. She perceived his sacrificial atonement. She saw it. She, she heard what her friends were going to do, and she knew that if they told the Pharisees Jesus was going to be forever under their watchful eye, and eventually he'd be condemned. And so she comes, and she brings, and she anoints him for his burial. She perceives what Jesus has done for us. Do you? Like, What's your motivation for serving him? So that you can look good and get the t-shirt, strut around town as though you're a good Christian? Or is it that you say, Jesus, I am all in. Whatever it takes, I am all in. I am committed to you. And it is an intimate commitment. It's not one that goes public. It's deeply intimate. Mary prayerfully got that alabaster jar. She took what was probably 80 or 90% of her wealth, and she broke the box, which means you can't unbreak the box. You can't put a cork in it. It's broken. It's done. You can't save it. All of it, all of it was poured out for Jesus. And she serves him, the whole of who she is, unbinding her hair, as if to say there are no conditions, no cultural conditions, no social conditions, I don't care what my sister Martha thinks. I love that in John, they didn't actually tell us what Martha thought. You can only imagine what Martha thought when they see Mary break the alabaster box. Martha, what are you doing? She breaks the box and she gives it all for him. Can we see Jesus as the sacrificial atonement for us? And can that motivate us, therefore, to go and serve him with all that we are without condition? Friends, as we see Jesus in the book of John, there are five different kinds of people. There are the cautious. There are the ones who are conspiratorial. They conspire against Jesus. They calculate against him. 
They're the curious. They stand away, look at them from a distance. There's the committed, like Mary. And there's the counterfeit, like Jesus. Which are you? Honestly. Which are you? Were the whole realm of nature mine? Mary thought that were an offering far too small. Listen, in this time of quarantine for us, no matter where you are, all of us, in a sense, have gone back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, haven't we? And we've thought, if the economy tanks and if we lose everything, do we have enough to feed our families? Check. Do we have shelter over our head? Check. Do we have clothing for our bodies? Check. Do we have a job to be able to provide for tomorrow? Check. We've all asked very fundamental questions in the quarantine. Isn't it therefore appropriate that we also spiritually ask very fundamental questions? How do you respond to who Jesus Christ says he is? Are you committed? Were the whole realm of nature mine that were an offering far too small? Lord, would you take our lives and let them be consecrated wholly to thee? Would you take our will and make it thine? It shall be no longer mine. Not a might will we withhold. It is yours, Father. It is yours alone. May we encourage each other with these words. And may we rest in the righteousness that is ours, not by our performance, but through Christ, the sacrificial Lamb of God, who Mary saw a picture of and ran to serve and delight. May we this week also do the same. Would you encourage your family with these words? Amen.